How do I let go of craving for others' love? How do I love myself? Or is there no self to love? Well, of course, the desires for other people's affection or attention, that is the need of the ego. Because the ego basically lives off the feedback from others uh, and gets its uh, you know uh, emotional support from you know some few individual uh, persons, whether it's a family or uh, some you know relationship. So that, that's a need of the ego. Uh, but when you develop meditation, and, and you, because we need the attention from others, we need the love because we have holes inside of ourselves. We have, that need to be filled. We don't even know who our self is. So we, we need that uh, feedback from others. But when you know who yourself is, that means when you're, you get reconnected to that life force within yourself, when you get con back connected to the present moment, and you experience that expansion of consciousness that kind of goes beyond I, me, mine, then you feel a, a connection kind of with, you know, the universe, so to speak. You know, the, you know, the idea of, of oneness, right? So these kind of ideas of oneness or uh, universal being or whatever, all these different terms that have been used, they're referring to, you know, that very expanded state of awareness that's beyond even thoughts of I, me, and mine, and others. And so metta is also like that when you practice the metta. Uh, that's the unbounded love. You're not expecting love back from others, but it's a quality of that, uh, of that mind that's no longer bound by the ego and bound by its attachments and so on. So, basically, that's how you love yourself, but it's not really loving the self. It's when you've gone beyond the self, uh, that love is a natural uh, outpouring. And you're, you're totally at one in your own body as well. Uh, and it's the life force, it's awareness that actually you love, or it's you know, that quality of love, the awareness that that's goes out in all the ten directions. It's not taking favors and attachment and clinging to any uh, sides. <coughs> and also this idea of love, it's kind of a misnomer because, you know, it's an English word. And we grow up learning meanings of words, right? So, in like for in English, love means a certain thing. 
uh, f- for the common person. You know, it is, means uh, uh, to use a term, businessman's love. I'll love you if you love me. You know, a lot of relationships are kind of, you know, uh, involved in that. And if somebody takes their love away, you may still like a person for a while, but little by little your love may go in some other direction and uh, so on. <coughs> so, you know, and even the idea of metta as love is also a, mis- a misnomer. It's, 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 it gets confused. You don't have to love everybody. Just don't hate them. You know, be friendly to them. You don't have to love them. You don't have to love your enemies. But you treat them equally, you know, as you would treat other people. They're also a living being, and you have just have this sense of, okay, you know. But you don't have to worry on loving them. That's a, that's a misconception. Uh. <clears throat> mm, there's a word here, I don't know if I recognize it. Uh, maybe somebody can. Oh, okay, jhana states. What is the role of the jhana states in vipassana meditation? People are obsessed with this jhana, 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 jhana. Well, as I mentioned, in Forget it. Let's forget about the word jhana for the moment, because it basically it refers, you know, it comes from the word samadhi, right? So there's words for samadhi. There's three types of samadhi, which means concentration. And full samadhi is identical with jhana. You say a person attains a apana jhana. And that's considered to be the first, second, third, fourth jhanas. But... Uh, uh, you know, a generic term, the samadhi covers that. But there's three kinds of samadhi. One is called kanika samadhi. And that's also concentration, but it's the momentary concentration that I mentioned today, which is generally used in vipassana practice. That means where the mind is able to focus on one object, but when it vanishes, the next object that comes up, it's aware of that. And that vanishes and it's aware of the next one. But it's concentrated. It's not being distracted. So the hindrances are not there. The hindrances are largely subsided. Or there may be a few hindrances, but even the hindrances then are, are an object of that samadhi. And the, uh, but anyway, it's the momentary concentration, the ability to flow from moment to moment moment of feeling, hearing, thinking, touching, but without getting caught and uh, carried away by them. The ability to notice and let go. Notice and let go. That is uh, what's called kanaka samadhi, or momentary concentration. Because you're concentrated in the moment, and the mind lets go of it, and it's, then it, it's just able to follow the moment-to-moment arising and vanishing of phenomena. So that is the kind of samadhi that we uh, normally associate with vipassana meditation. And 
when that is built up to a very high degree, uh, sometimes it's called vipassana jhana, when the hindrances have subsided and the mind is really, really in a super uh, hyper-aware state uh, and so on at the point of attaining enlightenment. It's called a vipassana jhana. <coughs> so, uh, now, you know, there's this big, you know, debate amongst meditators about, oh, do you have to attain uh, the first or the fourth jhana, you know, before you can effectively uh, practice, uh, you know, uh, vipassana. And then there's, and some teachers swear by it. Oh, yes, yeah. And then there's others who say, no, this kanaka samadhi is uh, enough. Because if you get absorbed in a jhana, basically you're not much aware of other things because your mind is absorbed, whether it's in a casina or it's an absorbed in one object. You don't have really much awareness of the other senses working and things going on. So then you can't practice jhana in that state actually very well uh, because you need the uh, you need the variation. You need the impermanence, uh, the flow of impermanence to develop the the wisdom of impermanence and also to transform. You need to be able to observe pain and being able to to relax around it. You need to be able to change your reactions to to pain, to other uh, negative uh, stimulations, uh, and we have to ch- change our habits. That's the, about attaining enlightenment, and purifying the mind. It's about purifying the sanskaras, the samkaras, the the habit formations, purifying uh, you know the emotions and and other things in reaching a state of inward uh, tranquility in the midst of experiences. So, you know, there's some different aspects that have to be understood about uh, the practice. So, uh, and also this idea of being absorbed uh, in one thing and kind of losing awareness of of other things, that's also, I mean, you can get the mind into that state, but that's not necessarily the, the, the right samadhi, you know, the samma samadhi. Uh, and the, uh, the, the, because again, that doesn't get rid of the defilements. Uh, attaining jhanas does not purify greed, hatred, and delusion just by itself. But a person may attain the jhana and then direct that attention toward uh, developing vipassana and then they could attain enlightenment. But the problem is most people get stuck in the jhana and they don't want to let go of it. I mean, into the absorption, the bliss and the lights and the power that may come from, and they get distracted. And that's the danger of that. But you can attain jhana through vipassana. By practicing moment-to-moment attention, 
And the hindrances are part of that attention and developing the skill to overcome the hindrances. Uh, even by practicing moment-to-moment -moment attention, attaining this kanaka samadhi, the hindrances also get uh, basically uh, suppressed. And then you use that for developing insight. There's something called the seven factors of enlightenment. And in, the, in, the, in all the Buddhist teaching of lists, different lists, mindfulness always comes before concentration. In the five spiritual faculties, it's mindfulness or faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. In the Eightfold Path, right mindfulness comes before right concentration. In the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness comes first, and right concentration or samadhi comes uh, at number six. So you can see that in all those instructions, mindfulness, which means the four foundations of mindfulness, is taught before and emphasized before attaining the jhana. Because you attain it through practicing mindfulness. Uh, because when the hindrances are suppressed, that's jhana, that's, that's vipassana jhana. So you get the jhana by practicing through the practice of the, the mindfulness, the vipassana, if you're doing it in the proper uh, way. So basically there's two ways to attain jhana. One is through uh, practicing moment, moment to moment attention, developing insight and wisdom, suppressing the hindrances, uh, and after that, at any time, the, the mind could open and the first stage of enlightenment could be uh, realized. Or, a person may practice concentration as a separate practice, but that's more difficult, it takes more time. And for lay people, I, I don't think it's very practical. Because in order to attain jhana through just practicing on a single object and getting the mitas, it's not easy. Uh, and it requires long periods of seclusion for most people. And even if you do get the jhana in a retreat, these kind of jhana retreats that you hear about, people may attain the jhana at the end of that retreat, maybe for you know, a short period of time. But when they go home, they won't have the conditions to continue it for the most part, unless you're kind of a lay recluse or something. But generally, the conditions, and to maintain it. And when you go out on the street, interact with people, you're normally not uh, maintaining that jhana. So therefore, it's not practical, in my point of view. And that's why I personally have not pursued that uh, method. But the method of using it and attaining concentration through the practice of moment-to-moment -moment awareness, which you can uh, use and maintain it uh, in many kind of you know, situations, because you practice it while walking, standing, and so on, is uh, you know, mindfulness, but concentrated mindfulness and so on. Anyway, there's lots of other things that could be uh, uh, said about that. Uh, 
Oh, actually, yeah, the Buddha mentioned two ways of meditating. One is called uh, Samadhi Pubangama Vipassana. That means a, practice, a person practices Samadhi first and then turns that concentration into the practice of Vipassana. Or the other is Vipassana Pubangama Samadhi. That means a person practices uh, Vipassana first or basically uh, 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 vipassana or develops wisdom first and through that attains the uh, samadhi. So samadhi pubangama vipassana, vipassana pubangama samadhi. So it's different strokes for different folks. So some people will be like myself, I find the Vipassana leading to samadhi, uh, more suitable for my mind, because I tried practicing one point in concentration for a long period of time when I was a young monk, and I you know, didn't get that much success in it. And once I switched over to Vipassana, it was much easier. And I found it more practical, because you can maintain that in many, many other situations in life, uh, which you can't with just a the one-pointed absorption. How does karma exist if it's recognized that there's no past or future and is impermanent, even all vibrations? Uh, don't get too intellectual with these terms, karma and so on. You know, uh, if you tell a lie and then you get arrested and put in jail, that's your karma. You, know, you don't need past or future or anything else. We're talking about the conditioned world in the, in the, in the world of action and reaction, not the, not the level of enlightenment. Enlightened person is beyond karma. So that arhat doesn't produce any karma because there's no ego behind it and there's no greed, hatred, and delusion behind the action. So therefore there's no karmic result. Uh, and karma is intention. You intentionally have the idea, I'm going to do something. And it's that intention, the strength of that intention that produces the strength of the result. That's why intent unintentionally Killing something doesn't have a strong karmic result as if you intentionally do it and plan it out and, and then do it because the will and the ego is behind it. And so it exists on the relative plane, but that's where everybody is until you reach an arhat. Uh, you know, and if you figure there's almost seven billion people on the earth and how many arhats on there, I mean, you know, it's a very small percentage. You very briefly touched on compassion or metta. Can you expand on why there's such importance placed on compassion and loving kindness in 
in Buddhism. Because compassion and loving kindness is an antidote for hatred and self-centered miserliness and all these other negative mental states that uh, prevent you from reaching any, uh, you know, kind of happiness. It leads to suffering. That self, selfish, self-centered, I, me, what can I hoard and keep for me and hell with anybody else. So metta and karuna helps to open the heart. And when you open the heart, then, then you, your heart gets softer and uh, then you're not plagued with these uh, negative types of thoughts or this very narrow, contracted mind that's contracted around just me, self, and my own little world. So it helps to open up to you know, the mind. So that's the, one of the main purposes for it. Because, again, it has that sense of, as the mind gets purified of the ego, it has that kind of sense of connection that, you know, with, with that life force that's, you know, in everybody and so on. It identifies with that life force. And, you know, any type of suffering that's in the world is going to affect others. Look at all the wars and hatred, how it affects the common person. People, you know, get upset when they hear the news and all these wars and fighting going on and all this other, you know, stuff, you know, that upsets people's minds, right? I mean, so, but if the whole world was, you know, all loving and compassionate, uh, you know, it would almost be like heaven on earth. But most of the hell comes from hatred, anger, selfishness, and so on. Is it okay to do sitting meditation with eyes open? If yes, please give some guidance. Well, if, if you're familiar with Zen, in Zen meditation centers, they make you keep the eyes open when you meditate. And if you close the eyes, they come by and jab you with a stick. <laughs> well, maybe not anymore. But, uh, <laughs> so... But the reason why we normally recommend uh, people to close the eyes is because the eye is one of the strongest senses. I think most people probably, rather than, you know, if you had to be defective in one sense, it would, people would probably be deaf than blind or not be able to, you know, smell <laughs> rather than, you know, blind would... Because that's really where you know the strongest craving goes out of the eyes, the craving to see. And it's very interesting. The eye and the eye. Same word, right? Spelled differently, but so I think there's some connection with that, you know. Because that eye gives a relationship back to us. You look, oh, I'm more beautiful than that person. Or I, you know, this and that, the judgments and the comparisons. It doesn't come much through hearing because, you know, uh, you know, there's not that much stimulation just through hearing. But the eye is, is, is stronger. So therefore, okay, look, if I asked you to 
sit and keep your eyes open and meditate, and then a snake crawls around, <gasps> right? If you're a beginning meditator, right? <clears throat> or something else. Or maybe you'll be attracted to look over at that person or look over at that person. So that's why in the beginning, we recommend people uh, to gently close the eyes. And because the meditation is inside and it's not outside really. And so it helps to direct that energy inside. But once you attain a good degree of mindfulness and concentration and reach that buffer zone type of awareness that I had mentioned, where the mind is kind of no longer reacting too much, then if you let the eyes open a bit, you're no longer going to be attracted to want to look at this or look at that or, uh, you know, so on, react too much. And you're not really looking out the eye. Anyway. The eyes are open, but it was like there's nothing there much. But look, even in Zen, what do they do? They look at a white wall. So I don't see any point in that. If you want to overcome the attachment of the eye, you have to do it in the midst of seeing things, not to stare at a blank wall or a white wall to keep the eyes open. Uh, but anyway, that's... Uh, so therefore, anyway, if... You know, try it, you, try it sometime if you want, you know. But wait until you've reached a good level of, of concentration and awareness. And then if you feel like it, just kind of just... Don't really open the eyes, just let the eyelids come up, usually kind of like about half, so that the gaze would just fall on the floor about six feet in front of you or so. But still stay connected to the, the breathing and, and the sensations. Therefore, the mind is not going to go out to so much want to go out. And a feeling of emptiness or hollowness can arise in the consciousness. Because the eyes are open, but there's no energy going out the eye. There's no ego energy going out of the eye. And so a kind of a feeling of emptiness uh, can be heightened. And so that's something that, you know, you can also uh, experiment with. That. Uh, and sometimes when you're in a deep state of awareness and no longer you know, looking out or reacting to anything, the eyes may actually turn up. And they may kind of like, like, you know, go up like that on their own because there's no, no more need for the eye. You're not focusing on anything. And you can also get a, a sense of emptiness when that happens too. But only if you've already reached a deep level of concentration. Don't try it when you're in your normal uh, sort of... Uh, active state. So, you know, all these things, you know, you can experiment with these different types of things. Eyes open, eyes closed. Hands like this, hands like this, sitting like this, sitting like that, sitting in a chair. Each person is different. So, but you have to know what the, the ultimate goal of meditation is. If you're just playing games and stuff like that, then, you know, it's going to have limited value. But.
So the, all, the criterion should always be, how is what you're doing helping you to develop better mindfulness, better concentration, and wisdom? That should always be the criteria. Is it weakening your attachment or lessening your, uh, or strengthening your attachment or your ego? Those, that's, that's called the mirror of Dhamma, to reflect back whether you, th you, know, you think you're making progress or not. It's all about our wholesome states increasing and unwholesome states decreasing. If the unwholesome states are decreasing and the wholesome states are increasing, that's Dhamma. But if the unwholesome states are increasing and the wholesome states are decreasing, that's Adhamma, or not Dhamma. And that should be our kind of criterion. Can you speak to how meditation leads to insights off the cushion? while not actually meditating. Well, actually, you know, there's a lot of stories in Zen, but even in the Theravada uh, uh, tradition of people attaining enlightenment, not actually in formal meditation. Uh, you know, out doing something. But those people had a history of, you know, doing you know, gobs of meditation before that. And so the formal meditation, going on retreats, meditating every day, and you know, that's basically kind of loosening up the mind, loosening up the, the strong uh, clinging, you know, opening, opening the heart, opening awareness, and so on. And uh, when once, you know, that has occurred, uh, any little thing could, you know, open up uh, the mind. Even just relaxing. Like, you know, it needs effort. So it takes a lot of effort to, you know, sit straight and bring back the mind and the effort to get up early and meditate, endure pain. That requires effort. But, a lot of people, even one person in this retreat also even just mentioned it. It's at the point where they kind of gave up that effort and said, oh, nothing's going to happen. They gave up, boom, it happened. Not enlightenment, maybe, but anyway, some, the mind opened and there was some deep insight. And so that's very common. So, you know, we're doing the work and, you know, you, you certainly you can get insights while you are meditating, but uh, you, if you remain mindful out there in the world, something could you could stub your toe, and all of a sudden, you know, the mind would, uh, you know, get an insight and laugh about it, and you know, uh, could even attain enlightenment. I mean, read those Zen stories and so on, or you know, other, other things. But it wouldn't happen without the previous uh, work.
But that's why I always emphasize when uh, after sitting meditation, when the bell rings, not just to get up and go out, no. Keep it lingering for a bit. Mindfully stand up. Don't rush to the future. Practice standing awareness. Because you stand around a lot during the day. You're not sitting like this around the day in the office and in the supermarket and stuff. But you're standing, right? And so if you know how to uh, practice uh, the awareness in standing, you can do it lots of places. In fact, I was going to ask, how many people who are doing the standing meditation today had some deep concentration or awareness? Or got some insights? So standing is a, is a powerful form of uh, meditation. Because it forces you to be awake. It's too easy just to nod out when you're sitting and let the mind wander. But because in order not to fall down, the mind has to be more attentive. For that purpose, it's a good. Mm. When we find a flowing rhythm with the breath, It becomes like poetry beyond awareness. I wouldn't say beyond awareness. uh, Is there a physical part to the rhythm? So please describe it. Well, basically, you know, like the way we do the yoga, the way that I, you know, lead the yoga is, you know, you use the breathing, going in and out of the postures with this kind of nice, uh, flowing, rhythmic breathing and letting the breath help move the body. And by repeating it several times, that creates this flow of pranic energy and electrical energy up and down the limbs and through the prananadis and so on that, uh, you know, is just becomes a very soothing and Uh, current that helps to uh, tranquilize and relax uh, the nervous system uh, more and more into the the present moment Uh, and and keeping a steady rhythm. Like people normally, they speed up and then they slow down. They speed up and get tired and have to flop in a chair. Then they jump back up and they rush around and but no mindfulness. So instead, when you develop a very even keel, you know, and uh, through that kind of, uh, you know, and coordinating the breath with your different movements forces you to, you know, slow down and pause. And that helps, you know, the energy in the body to gain a very mellow and, and focused kind of concentration. And that has effects on the whole psyche on the whole physical, as I said, the body and mind are conjoined. They're they're not really separate. Uh, And so therefore, 
also exercises like Tai Chi and Qigong, they have the same kind of effect of, uh, you know, slow mindful movements and it has effect on the whole, you know, body-mind system. So that, uh, you know, so the, you know, there's a physical part and the mental, you really can't separate them. Because every cell of the body has awareness. And so, you know, when you develop a more even, you know, you, you know, like walking slowly, you really, a lot of times, you know, the, in the beginning of, you know, people in a hurry, bell ring, oh, I got to get to meditation. So they kind of walk fast, you know, run down, you know, come to the cushion, sit down. Instead, I used to teach them, don't rush. Practice walking, walking. So when you get to the cushion, you're already meditating. And you hit, the, you sit down already in almost a jhana. Maybe not a jhana, but you know, you, you sit down already meditating. So there's no need to rush. Don't rush. Either to get to the meditation hall, give yourself time to reach the meditation hall. If you rush to the meditation hall, sit down, you've got to spend 15 minutes letting that tension and stress out. In the same way when you meditate at home, when you go home. Don't just come in and sit down after, you know, Get relaxed a little bit, relax, slow down, maybe do some yoga exercise, and then, then sit down. There's not so much of a struggle beating your head against the wall, trying to stay awake, or trying to reel in the, the mad monkey mind, and, and so on. What does the transition from stable, broad, meditative awareness of body, etc., to the vipassana experience appear like in practice? Well, it appears like the flow of impermanence. Uh, and th there can be some different aspects to it. But when the mind attains this more open awareness and is able to feel like, you know, sort of the, the, the perimeter of the body and, uh, you know, different sensations and even hearing sounds at a certain point, what's called full-blown sixth-sense door awareness is really what vipassana is. Uh, and it's where you're able to f feel like many sensations in the, in the body, even hundreds, uh, thousands, even in the space of a few seconds, as well as hearing many, many sounds going on all over. Uh, and even uh, thoughts uh, and urges maybe going through the mind and, and so on. You know, it, it's incredible 
because the mind is not reacting to anything. Therefore, it can experience many, many things at the same time. The reason why we can't, because we're, our mind is getting stuck and glued and reacting to particular sensations, and so you can't really feel so many, because the mind gets you know, stuck on them. You know, when you're worrying about the pain in your knee, you can't hear the, you know, the birds singing half a mile down the road. Or even other things around you. But when the mind is no longer caught like that, it becomes like a mirror. There's a beautiful term used in Zen, ocean mirror samadhi. And the, and the mind becomes like a mirror that reflects anything that comes within the range of the senses. It just reflects it automatically, effortlessly, without having to look at anything. Because it's like a receiver, that, that awareness, the mind is like a receiver that's receiving anything within the range of the mind. It registers in awareness. Uh, and it's incredible the amount of things that you can uh, notice even in the space of a few seconds uh, when the mind is in a deep state of uh, calm and, and awareness. So you can see things like the, the rate of... Uh, impermanence speeds up. And you can see just so many things just arising and vanishing. Almost like tracer bullets being shot out of a 50 caliber machine gun. Anybody's been in the army. Uh, so, so, you know, that can, it's, uh, can build up to a very uh, uh, powerful, uh, you know, level. Uh, and so, but at a certain point also, sometimes that whole flow of impermanence may vanish and the mind attains just a, a very deep stillness and there's awareness left but without hardly anything uh, appearing. So there's various stages in experience that one can can experience. Or like when one reaches the, attains Magga and Pala, or the experience of Nibbana, that's called cessation. And uh, it's a cessation of the ego. And when the ego subsides, it's not identifying any object. So it's like objects have disappeared, but still vaguely in the background, there, there's still some kind of uh, Awareness is not like an empty vacuum, uh, but uh, so on. At times I deal with anxiety and depression I have encountered problems where meditation can sometimes induce anxiety. How can I use mindfulness to remedy this? What else can I do? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, sometimes people can experience anxiety when they meditation because uh, they may not want to face the truth. It gets too painful. 
to see how mad their mind is or looking at other types of uh, you know mental states and so on and then they don't want to, to deal with it or, or about suffering the contemplate suffering that kind of maybe brings up some past memories or contemplate death and, and some past uh, repressed memories of you know having been killed or whatever so many horror stories from past lives uh, it could uh, bring up anxiety in people uh, but usually that's in the beginning and if you can just see that anxiety and just note it okay anxiety anxiety but don't identify with it or even depression I know these are very strong types of emotions but they're just mental bubbles and normally we identify with them because we're identifying with the object of the anxiety or the depression but maybe sometimes there isn't an actual object um, but anyway in vipassana practice we train ourselves whatever mental state it is is sadness happiness you know anxiety fear uh, maybe uh, depression we try to see it with detachment is just a mental state, a bubble, like a mental bubble. But it's not part of your the true mind. It's not part of the real mind. It's just conditioned. And and you have to cultivate this as even intellectual wisdom first. I understand that all these different whole range and gamut of mental states or any other types of objects are basically just mental bubbles, like water bubbles that come up from the bottom of a, a river or a lake. But they don't really have, you know, they break on a surface and they, they don't have any substance. And the only substance we give them is are the ego's feedback. Oh, woe with me, I'm like this, I'm like that. We keep on feeding. And I know it's difficult when people are in the grip of that, but, you know, it, it takes uh, uh, training, but eventually one can do it if uh, one, you know, gives it uh, the effort, at least to a certain extent. And as I was mentioning to somebody else, you know, the, of course, depression is such a common thing these days in bipolar and other states of depression, and people usually take medication for these. And uh, we advise people not to stop medita uh, medication and think that meditation is going to overcome that, because it doesn't necessarily. I've seen people even meditation, some people who have taught meditation get, uh, or others who meditate and stop their medication six months later or they committed suicide. So don't stop medication, but with medication 
Actually, meditation is medication. <laughs> the different thing. So, but you can take medication in conjunction with a therapist who recommends meditation, and then little by little, as you gain some uh, ability in, in the meditation to detach from your observation, you know, from your emotions and your and so on, whatever you know. Uh, then the therapist might gradually wean you off medication. And that some people have, you know, overcome depression through that way of eventually uh, being able to get off medication totally for, let's say, more milder states of depression and so on. Did you have a related question to that? What makes an insight an insight? Intellectually, I understand impermanence. But I haven't had any profound experiences about it. It's because you haven't developed your uh, uh, sort of vipassana up to a, a high level or other types of meditation. Meditation. Uh, but as I'm going to talk about in the next few days also, in Vipassana, the skill or the trick in Vipassana is you speed up your rate of perception. Because normally our mind is dull. And it's, you know, experiencing, oh, duh, oh, duh, oh, duh. And because it's, it's clinging, it's clinging on to things. But when the mind is no longer clinging and you start noticing, you deliberately speed up the rate of perception. Uh, or it, it happens naturally because the mirror, the mirror reflects everything simultaneously at the same time, doesn't it? So also does our mind when it's not disturbed. But if the mirror is covered with mud or dust, then you can't clearly see the object in the mirror, isn't it? It's exactly the same thing with the mind. That's why it's often called the mirror mind, the mirror samadhi. When the mind attains tranquility, it reverts or it regains its, or simply re, not regain it. It's always there. The dust is what's blocking it. And the dust is our attachment and aversion and ignorance. So, uh, but anyway, so when the mind gets, uh, but you have to kind of tune the mind to it. And so you like we did with the body scanning. So you're scanning the, the mind through the body and deliberately trying to see how many little sensations you can notice. Like even with the breathing. That's why I 
recommend people to focus on the breathing here because there's many more little sensations of expanding and contracting than you can feel if you're feeling that subtle sensation at the nose or upper lip, which is a more kind of a, doesn't have much change in it. Uh, but here, the, you know, especially when you're doing like deep, slow breathing, there's, and so you can feel many things and then uh, as the mind gets concentrated, you know, after like a body scan, after that body scan today or even after the yoga, could, could people feel lots of sensations like even at the same time kind of going on all over? How many thought they could? <clears throat> okay, so that can develop to very, uh, you know, strong degree. In fact, those Goenka courses, you know, the 10-day courses of Goenka, they specialize in that kind of uh, body scanning development of the, to feel the body is just, you know, just uh, all this mass of changing sensations. But even with the body, then you also allow sounds to come in. So you're hearing, you're being aware of so many uh, body sensations arising and vanishing, and in between those at the same time, sounds are arising and vanishing. Even thoughts are arising and vanishing. And you deliberately try to speed up the rate of, to more and more and more. That's what's called full-blown sixth-sense door awareness. And that's really vipassana, actually, the, the, the heightened, the very advanced level of... Uh, Vipassana's full-blown sixth-sense door awareness. Uh, but you have to have a good level of samadhi because otherwise you go mad. Too many things coming through. Uh, and because of that, the mind has no, lo no time to drag in the past or future about any particular object. You know, when you're just noting it just vanishes there's no time for the mind to the mind doesn't cling on because there's something else to notice and so it's bringing in the past and future about an object that creates the mental disturbance it brings up attachment aversion other types of of thoughts but when that's not happening then uh, because also the ego is related to the objects that it's identified with. Anyways, I'm not going to give away all the secrets right now, but uh, that'll be another Dhamma talk. Uh, but anyway, you know, there's a lot of stages toward Vipassana, but speeding up the rate of perception is the, the key. It's what I call the trick of Vipassana. It's the Buddha's high-tech high-tech mental technology to trick the mind out of itself, to trick the ego out of itself, to trick the, the mind out of its attachment by not giving it time to get attached. Because we're speeding up the rate of perception and opening up the floodgates. Uh, of And, and that's vi really Vipassana. Seeing reality as it is is just seeing the flow of stimulation through the senses, and there's millions of them going through every minute through our senses. Normally we don't see them because our mind is stuck and dull or half asleep. 
or lost in its thoughts. So it's like a filter. Our brain, our conditioned brain is like a filter. And it filters out everything except what we're attached to or what's in our immediate environment. But that's only a tiny, tiny fraction of what the world is. So that's also part of insight. Excuse me if I talk too much. Anyway, yeah, I don't want to, uh, I'm going to save the rest of these questions for tomorrow because I don't want to go on too late. I still want to have, have a good, another meditation, so I'll leave those. Don't write any more questions tomorrow. <laughs> Okay, let's not mix these up with the other ones. I'll put them in there. Okay, so again, uh, sort of close the eyes a moment, take a couple of three-part breaths, kind of bring the attention back to ground zero, feel the buttocks, feet pressing the floor, don't turn those lights out so much. I want to see if you're sleeping. <laughs>